Chapter 6 of The Problem Club. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nat Gertler, Camarillo, California, USA. The Problem Club by Barry Payne. Number 6. The Identity Problem. The Reverend Septimus Cunliffe took the chair at the 48th meeting of the Problem Club. The problem which Leonard, the astute headwaiter, had set the members to solve during the preceding month was simply the discovery of his own identity, and competitors were debarred from communicating with Leonard himself or from employing detectives in its solution. Mr. Cunliffe, with a pardonable enjoyment of his own excellent elocution, read out the terms of the problem in tones that almost made it a drama and the few introductory remarks that usually fell from the chairman became, in his case, almost an address. True, the occasion furnished him with some excuse. Gentlemen, he said, with this meeting the Problem Club brings to a close the fourth year of its existence. The idea of the club, as I dare say most of you are aware, originated in the imaginative brain of Lord Herngill, and of the original members there are still three left us, Sir Charles Bunford, Major Biles, and Mr. Matthews. The eccentric nobleman, who was our founder, did not himself long remain a member. Broken in health, and, as I understand, suffering from private disappointments, he relinquished his clubs and retired altogether from society. He spent the remainder of his days on his Yorkshire estate, shut out from the world and even denying himself the companionship of old friends. It was only a few months ago that his death was announced in the newspapers. A somewhat gloomy subject, gentlemen, but it seems to me fitting that on this occasion we should recall with gratitude the name of our founder. Now, for the first two years of the club's existence, the monthly problem was always provided by the member whose duty it would be to adjudicate on it, but during the second year it was found that this did not work well. Some of the members had not sufficient readiness of invention. Others did not show sufficient discretion. Our minutes of the period show some problems, I grieve to say, that can only be described as scandalous. Under these circumstances, a member, Mr. Barstairs, since dead, was deputed to find for us some able and trustworthy person who, for a small honorarium, would act as our setter of problems. At the next meeting, he announced that he had selected Leonard, who had then just become head waiter here. The selection of a head waiter for the purpose seemed to some of us, certainly to myself, fantastic more especially as Barstairs offered no explanation at all. But, we must admit, fantasy plays some part in the spirit of the club, and no formal objection was raised. Time has shown that Barstairs had reason in his fantasy. Leonard has given us every satisfaction. Whoever he may be, I think that we are agreed on one point, that he possesses qualities unusual in a headwaiter. In fact, gentlemen, the news that I am about to give you will, I am sure, be received with regret. I have a letter from Leonard, in which he tells me that after eleven tonight he will cease to be in the service of the hotel, and will no longer be available as our problem-setter. He offers, if it would be any convenience to us, to name a successor whose ability and discretion he can guarantee absolutely. I may add that it is a very properly expressed and respectful letter. The appointment of a successor may, I think, be considered later. Let us now proceed to the adjudication of the current competition. I confess that if I personally had to find out who Leonard is, I should not, under the conditions imposed, know how to begin. However, I have great confidence in the ingenuity of the ten members before me. There would have been eleven, but for Harding Pope's resignation. The chairman's confidence was misplaced. 
Every member had made an attempt to solve the problem, but every one had failed. Several of them had hit on the expedient of following Leonard when he left the hotel. The Honorable James Feldane, for example, had hit on it and recounted his failure. I lay up in a taxi a few yards from the door of this place, where I could get a good view. Presently out came Leonard, and I might very easily have missed him, for I was expecting him to bob up from the basement, and he came out of the main entrance. He was well turned out, and looked rather less like a head waiter than I do myself. He called up a taxi and got in. Off he went, and off I went after him, my driver having been instructed. We drove, as near as I can guess, for about umpty-ump hours. I know I began to wonder if my cigarettes would last out the trip. Then my cab slowed down to a crawl, and I looked cautiously from the window. Leonard's cab had stopped in front of a moldy-looking place with big gilt letters on it. He overpaid his cabman. I heard the words, thank you, distinctly ran up the steps, rang a bell, and entered. I got out. Cabby, I said, where are we? Is this the hereafter? No, sir, he said. Looks like it, but it's really Brixton. The big gilt letters informed me that Leonard had entered the Bulu Temperance Hotel. I pushed the push, and the door was half opened to me by an Italian waiter with the darkest eyes and hands I ever saw, I could catch a glimpse of a small hall furnished with a good deal of dust and a stand for hats and coats. I spotted Leonard's excellent hat and overcoat thereon. The waiter looked at me suspiciously. I got right on to the point at once. I want, I said, the name and address of the gentleman who came in here just now, and I'll pay a sovereign for it. He seemed to understand the argument. In a minute he was back with the name and address and the information that the gentleman was stopping there for only one night. He got his sovereign. The name he gave was Leonard, and the address was the address of this hotel. I may have been more annoyed in the course of my life, but I doubt it. So I made the weary journey back again, had a light supper of one whiskey and soda, and went to bed. Mr. Matthews had followed Leonard on foot to the Ritz. Mr. Quillian had tracked him to a desperate hostelry in the far north of London. Major Biles had pursued him to an hotel in Wimbledon. They ascertained that he spent a night at each one of these three places, but they added nothing else to their knowledge of him. Sir Charles Bunford had been no more successful, but he had a curious story to tell. He had met Leonard by chance in St. James Street one night at half-past eleven. There was nothing in Leonard's dress or bearing that suggested anything less than complete independence. Sir Charles felt certain that he himself had not been recognized, turned, and followed him. He led me, Sir Charles recounted, up through the squares to Oxford Street, where he turned west. Just then there came shuffling along in the gutter toward us a street vendor with a tray of little toys slung from his shoulders. He gave the impression of an old man. Leonard and he both stopped. I also stopped, making a pretense of lighting a cigarette. They were both in the full light of a street lamp, and I had a close view of them. Leonard picked up from the tray a, a little monkey of blue plush mounted on a pin. Deliberately and without a smile, he stuck the monkey in the gutter merchant's battered bowler. Then he took out his note case, produced a fiver, and spread it on the tray, and walked on. During this curious incident... Neither of the men spoke. As you may imagine, I tackled the street vendor at once. You're in luck, I said. Did you know that customer? He folded his fiver and slipped it into an inner pocket. 
He looked at me shrewdly, and I noticed that his eyes were young. His voice, when he spoke, was quite young, and it was the voice of an educated man, too. Which of us, he said, can say that he knows the other, or even that he knows himself? Come, I said, I think you can tell me what I want to know, and two fivers are better than one. That is so, to some people, at some time. But not to Mr. William Bunting, the editor of the Pig Keeper's Friend. At this time, I will wish you good night, Sir Charles. And he walked off briskly, without a trace of the old slouch. How he knew my name, I can't tell you, for certainly Leonard, even if he knew I was following, never said a word to him. The man left me staggered. I rushed off again after Leonard, but I had lost him. That is all I have to tell, and I have given you the facts accurately as they happened. I was both sane and sober at the time, but if you doubt that, upon my word, I can't be surprised. The failure was general. Dr. Aiden had interviewed the proprietor of the hotel, who was most courteous, but, in the doctor's opinion, lied in his profession of ignorance. Mr. Pusely Smythe got hold of one of the other waiters, who appeared perfectly willing to betray anybody on the most moderate terms, but unfortunately had no information to impart. Well, said the chairman, I must decide that the problem has not been solved. The prize for it is not being awarded. The prize for the next competition is doubled. We have now to obtain the solution of the problem from the wily Leonard himself. At the same time, he is required to show us that the problem was possible of solution by us. It is now 20 to 11, and presumably Leonard leaves this hotel at 11, so we have not much time to spare. If you, Mr. Quillian, will unlock the doors and ring the bell, I will tell the waiter that we should be glad to see Leonard for a few minutes. But it was Leonard himself who answered the bell. He was a tall young man of good figure. He had not the stereotyped version of good looks, but his face was pleasing and full of humor and intelligence. He carried himself well. His dress was unsuited to the occasion, for he wore a well-cut lounge suit of dark blue cloth, and his brown laced boots suggested a product of Bond Street intended for use in the country. There was no trace of a waiter about him. His manner was easy, confident without being assuming, and marked just by that touch of restraint that a man might show on first introduction to a number of his equals. Well, Leonard, said the chairman, we were on the point of sending for you. Your problem has beaten us. Can you show us how we might have solved it and provide us with the solution? Certainly, said Leonard. I'd rather expected that I should be wanted. Good, now sit down, won't you? We're all quite informal here. Thanks, said Leonard. It seemed to be tacitly and generally accepted that he had become a guest of the club. Dr. Aiden proffered his cigar case. Jimmy brought him a whiskey and soda. I think I ought to begin, said Leonard, by apologizing to you for having given you all such a lot of trouble, more especially as it was quite intentional on my part. Part of the game, said Major Biles. That's all right. No apologies needed. Thanks very much. At any rate, I can apologize for these clothes. The fact is that I'm going north by the midnight train from Houston, and so I changed. And now, let me show one or two ways in which the problem could have been solved. Some of you followed me when I took a taxi to an outlying hotel and subsequently made applications at the hotel. If instead of doing this, you had hailed the taxi that I had just left, you would in each case have found inside it an address envelope giving you the information you required. When Mr. Feldane went to that very long drive to Brixton, I intentionally left my hat and coat in the hall of the alleged hotel for a few minutes. 
he examined the waiter. If he had examined the inside of my hat, he would have found a certain clue. Sir Charles very nearly caught me. That night I left the hotel much earlier than usual, and had satisfied myself that nobody was waiting for me outside. I was on my way to a house in Audley Street, where I was not known as the head waiter at this hotel, and my identity would probably have been discovered, and it was necessary that I should go to that house. At the top of St. James Street I found that Sir Charles was after me, but I had taken a precaution. A friend of mine was stationed in Oxford Street, masquerading as a vendor of penny plush monkeys. I found him, and we went through a little eccentric pantomime together that had been prearranged. As had been expected, Sir Charles stopped to make inquiries from him, and while that was happening, I made my escape. One moment, said Sir Charles. How on earth did he know who I was? You never spoke to him. No, I never spoke. And he did not know who you were. He did not know that you were Sir Charles Bumford, and does not know it now. He knew that he could address you as Sir Charles, and he knew that from the fact that I stuck the monkey in his hat. It was a prearranged code. If Major Biles had been following me, I should have stuck the monkey in my friend's right sleeve. He would then have addressed him as Major, though he would not have known his name. If Mr. Wildersley had been after me, the monkey would have gone into the left sleeve. My friend would have known by that sign that he was an artist, but would have known no more than that. Similarly, in other cases, he would always have appeared to have known, but would not have known really. Leonard, said the chairman, in my opinion you have shown both skill and discretion, and a good sporting spirit besides. I decide that your problem was fair. And now, will you solve it for us? Very good. I must give you some abbreviated family history. Uh, my grandfather had two sons, both of whom disappointed him, though in different ways. My uncle was a man of extreme avarice. My father, the younger of the two, was a gambler. Both my parents died before I was five years old, and I, the only child, passed into the charge of my grandfather. My grandfather placed me with the family of an intimate friend of his, who was also the senior partner in the firm of solicitors who acted for him, a Mr. Barstairs. Barstairs had married a Frenchwoman, French was the language generally spoken in their house, and most of my early years were spent abroad. I went through a public school in Cambridge without any particular disgrace or distinction. So far, my grandfather had kept me well supplied with money. In fact, at Cambridge, I had not spent my allowance, but I had never seen my grandfather. I wrote to him four times a year, and his replies were always witty and entertaining. I took everything for granted in the way that boys do. On my 21st birthday, I had a letter from my grandfather to the effect that, as an experiment, he wished me to make my own living in any way I liked for a period of some years. When that period was over, or sooner if he died before then, I was to be no longer under that necessity. Mr. Barstairs, who had not been consulted, was indignant about that letter, but I did not resent it myself. What assets had I had to offer an employer? My classical degree would have entitled me to teach in a school. A truly awful profession, to my mind. I spoke two continental languages well, and a third passably. I had an unusual knowledge of wines and cuisines for a man my age. Mr. Matthews will remember that Barstairs was an epicure. I had seen a good deal of hotel life at home and abroad. I took counsel with Mr. Hance, the proprietor of this hotel, who was known to me. After some training at an hotel in Paris, I became the night head waiter here, using my first name, Leonard, as my surname. My grandfather and Mr. Barstairs alone were taken into my secret. It's to the latter that I owe the pleasure of having served a club of which I should be proud one day to become a member if that were possible. 
I saw life from a novel and interesting angle. I had my mornings free for poetry, to which I am devoted. I was quite satisfied. There is little more to add. In the year that I came here, my uncle died unmarried. Three months ago, my grandfather also died, and I... Pardon me, said Sir Charles, but I have been watching your face carefully, and I think I see a family likeness or the trace of one. All that you have said would confirm it. I think you are the grandson of the founder of this club. In that case, you are the sixth Baron Herngill. That is correct. I remained here for these months while some legal matters were completed, and to oblige Hans, for I consider that he did me a good turn. I leave for Enthwaite tonight, and now, gentlemen, since time presses, may I mention that I have a successor to myself to propose to you, if you have made no other arrangements. He would act on the same terms as I have done. I will answer for his ability and discretion. He is, like myself, a poet. He is also the editor of an obscure weekly publication called The Pig Keeper's Friend. If you choose him, I have here his first problem to deliver to the chairman. His name is William Bunting. With your permission, I will retire for a few minutes while you consider this. When he had gone out, it was found that every member of the Problem Club had formed the same idea. On his return to the room, Lord Herngill was informed that Mr. Bunting had been appointed, and also that Lord Herngill had been proposed by the chairman, seconded by Sir Charles Bunford, and unanimously elected a member of the Problem Club. End of number six. Recording by Nat Gertler, Camarillo, California, USA.